But I think I was frightened to show up fully for a long time because of old stuff. So I could show up on behalf of other people. I could show up on behalf of the kids, on behalf of my community, the parents, the community, for the guest workers in Berlin. I could show up for other people, but I was struggling to show up for myself. And so I think what I'm giving birth to is a me that is ready to take her place in a totally different way. Hey, this is Achim Novak, executive coach and host of the My Fourth Act podcast. If life is a five-act play, how will you spend your fourth act? I have conversations with exceptional humans who have created bold and unexpected fourth acts. Listen and be inspired. And please rate us and subscribe on whatever platform you are listening on. Let's get started. I am happy to welcome Dr. Belinda Harris to the My Fourth Act podcast. Belinda is an academic, a former school principal, a psychotherapist, and she just retired as a professor in the University of Nottingham's School of Education, where she served for 28 years. Belinda is also the outgoing chair of the UK Association for Gestalt Therapists. For several years, Belinda worked closely with a world-renowned Gestalt International Study Center on Cape Cod, where she co-led their senior leadership program and helped establish an education initiative. Belinda is in a classic transition from being a very highly visible professional in the education field to looking at what she will do post-retirement, especially since she doesn't really want to stop. I can't wait to have this conversation with you about how you forge your fourth act, Belinda. Welcome. Thank you. I'm very honored to be here, Achim. Thank you very much. Oh, it's my pleasure. And before we get to the transition that you're in, which is such a beautiful transition, I always like to start every podcast with this question. When you, Belinda, were a young girl, a teenager, who did you think you wanted to be when you grew up? Okay, I'll be honest. I wanted to be Vanessa Redgrave. <laughs> That's pretty darn good. I just happen to think she's the greatest actress on the planet. But, oh, but, no. but tell us tell us why. <laughs> there was an ethereal quality about her. It's like she came from another universe. Yes. She has a quality and a depth to her that, in, that is manifest in her presence and mm-hmm. in her voice. She's so grounded and values-driven, principled, and she just has a magnetic quality to her. I always used to drool, and I just thought, God, I'd love to. I guess what I saw in her was somebody who was really living living her truth, who had the courage to live her truth, who'd say no to roles that were not right for her, who took on roles women's roles that were really challenging and at that point in time when I was younger very unusual for women to inhabit 
I was brought up a very strong Catholic girl. I'm no longer religious. Catholicism was a very big and important part of my childhood. And she played Anne Boleyn in um, Man for All Seasons. Yes. One of my favourite films. Such a difficult role to play, and she was magnificent. So that was the first time I ever saw her. What strikes me also, I, I admire all the same qualities in Vanessa Redgrave. But you also allude to the fact that she was not afraid of controversy. And she was willing to speak her truth. You spent a good 20, 30 years before you started teaching at the university in in education, from what I understand, in some challenging, not easy environments. You were at one point a school principal. Mm -hmm. I have done a lot of teaching work in schools as well. So I know how challenging that can be. So if you think of that period, and I know we're painting in really broad strokes. Yeah. If you had to think of a moment or two that stand out where you go, this is why I did that work, no matter how challenging it was. This is what kept me showing up. But perhaps you also had moments where you go, why the heck am I doing this? (laughs) This is too hard. What, What stands out for you? There were many moments. I I felt like I had a very privileged privileged experience in in education. But I guess the most challenging school I worked in was an inner city school, Mm -hmm. very multiracial school. It was a failing school. Mm -hmm. It was seen as in a neighborhood where nobody wanted to go and be. And it was a neighborhood that I'd lived in when I first came to this part of the country. And I'd loved it. Uh, And I loved the diversity in it. It was black, brown, yellow, white, pink, grey, everything. It was a very vibrant community. But it was a no-go area for many people. For many white people particularly, it was a scary place to be, allegedly. When I first went to that city, I didn't have any option because I didn't have any money. I was waiting, trying to find out where to live, and it was the only place I could get. Um, So I became very fond of it. And then I moved on somewhere else. And about three years later, a job came up in this school. And at the time, a very important person in my life who I'd been to school with was dying of cancer. I decided that I would take this job in the school in order to be able to spend more time with her. What can I say about that school It was a school where everybody was unhappy, where there was a a sense of us as a school, teachers absolutely committed to doing the best they possibly could with kids, and yet not having any real engagement with the community. The community was kind of out there, and they all drove in in their big cars, parked up and then drove out at night. So I went on a bit of a mission and we embarked on lots of activities in school. We did race awareness training. All the teachers had to go out and spend 30% of their week working in the community, doing valuable work. And we began to change their understanding and the connection. Suddenly the school became a place where the parents came in, uh, where the teachers knew the parents, where parents came in and learned with their children in the classroom And I remember we decided to set up something called a community council, 
where parents would come in and have a say over the school, how the school was run. And that was just the first one. And then we set up a number of uh, community councils for different aspects of the school's work. And I remember being in this meeting and the members of the community just really taking the teachers on and the teachers not getting offended, coming back and then really us all working together to push through the differences that we had in order to make this council somewhere where everybody belonged. I have a sense that what drives you or what drove you then is more than the education of young people. You understood that there is a much larger context and your desire to have a bigger impact beyond a limited view of what a teacher does Mm -hmm. and that that's a key driver for you. Is that Mm -hmm. correct? That's absolutely right. Yeah. And I'm a linguist. So I was given the job that I had. I had two jobs at school, one as a community development officer. The other was as a languages teacher. I was teaching Mm -hmm. French and German. Can you believe it? The kids had absolutely no interest in French and German. (laughs) And I didn't blame them. I did not blame them. So we found a way around. We found a way around that. But it was through getting to know them that my whole whole view of what education was about shifted. But also that had happened to me as a child, that teachers had seen me as a child who was struggling, who was behind, who had been missed and gave me a lot of time and attention and helped me to see myself as a human being who was worthy and capable. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to do that. That's That's what drove me into education in the first place. And that was the school where that really became a very live, powerful issue for me. And it was much more than what I could do as an individual for the school. It was about how we could build the school into a community. And for me, school was a sanctuary. When I went to the school that changed my life, it was a sanctuary. It was a safe place. I felt visible, seen, respected, included, an amazing difference from the education I'd had before. And I wanted that school to do the same for every child, but also for every family. Two things strike me. One is, again, you had this very holistic view of what a school community is, and it's an expansive view. And by having a holistic view, uh, we can elevate all of that community. But the other thing that struck me, and I, I want to point this out, maybe we can talk about it because it's, I think, very relevant to all of us who are examining our fourth acts. What I heard you say is part of your journey at the time was feeling worthy of what you were doing and claiming your worthiness and owning your voice and finding your voice and having the courage to speak with that voice. I need to go back a little bit, Achim, because Mm -hmm. I really found my voice when I was a student in Berlin, Mm -hmm. um, working with the so-called Gastarbeiter, as we know them, guest workers, Turkish guest workers, who at that point in in Germany were doing work that other people didn't want to do. They'd been brought in in order to work, but they weren't integrated into the community. And actually, there was a lot of racism, and they had a very difficult 
time. I only know about Berlin. I don't know how it was in other parts of Germany. Um, but I did a lot. I volunteered with that community and supported people. And I didn't have, I had never had a voice up till then. I was very quiet, very shy, introverted child and young person, mainly because I, I had a lot of shame. I always felt I wasn't good enough and there was something radically wrong with me. Um, but when I went to the police station to help them get their visas or to get their work permits or to support them and met kind of ger German bureaucracy at the time, which is very similar to British bureaucracy and American bureaucracy. I'm not singling the Germans out. It could be anywhere in the world. Yes. And, and um, I just remember thinking, if I don't speak, this person's going to get away with talking to somebody like that. And that is not okay. I just knew it was wrong. So maybe it was the little bit of Vanessa Redgrave in me. I don't know her influence. But I started to speak and say, no, sorry, I, please listen to her. She's got something important to say. Or that's not okay the way you're speaking to her now. I was very kind about it and gentle. But I wasn't prepared to allow that to happen. And that enabled me to slowly build more confidence in speaking out against injustice. Well, there's something very beautiful about what, claiming our voice by being a voice for others, right? This is, which is what you do as an educator as well. I, you spent a big chunk of your professional life teaching at a university mm. and your other I assume connected passion is Gestalt psychotherapy, and uh, mm. we both are know the, the the place in Massachusetts on Cape Cod, which is an exquisite place to learn and study as an adult. It is a sanctuary. It's it is a true sanctuary in a very special bucolic setting. Yeah. I, I want to get to the transition era now, but for us to understand the 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 importance of navigating it is to understand the degree to which you were in, you you were and are involved in in the academic world and the Gestalt world. So if you let's start with the Gestalt, um, and we could have do hours just on that. I'm sure, so I'm being incredibly unfair as a podcast host, but for a listener who who maybe doesn't understand how what's special about Gestalt as a form of psychotherapy and as a form of framing mm -hmm. our understanding and meaning-making of the world. What is it that you love about Gestalt? I think for me, when I um, came across Gestalt, if I'm perfectly honest, I fell in love with it because it was a German word, you know, and it's kind of, I, uh -huh. I, I loved it. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I wonder what that's about. Uh, then I found out that it started in Berlin. So that was another plus for me because I'm mm -hmm. a bit of a Berlinophile. I love Berlin. And, um, and, but mainly, I think when I really went into it, it's because it's not about fixing the individual. Like a lot of psychotherapy is very individually focused. And I, I respect all of that. I see the worth in that. But The problem with that is that then the individual takes responsibility for things that don't belong with them. Mm -hmm. So the thing that's magical for me that still maintains its magic now is that it's uh, it's about the relationship between the person and the environment. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. and how they interact with their environment. How facilitative in the, is their environment? How punishing is it? How inclusive is it? How exclusive is it? And how does this person bring their own unique gifts and qualities and experiences to that environment in order to make meaning of their life? Yeah. And um, so for me, that's been that was a revelation because that enabled me to come out of my shame mm-hmm. and to appreciate that it wasn't all my fault and that yes i'm you know i'm not a perfect human being i don't know anybody who is i have my limitations but it wasn't all about me and i thought everything that was wrong was my fault i automatically thought that um and so then i began to that also helped me to question the environment but it's helped me particularly with the kind of young people and communities that I've worked with as a teacher and an educator because they they are communities that typically do get pathologized it's their fault there's something wrong with them they don't work hard enough they don't they don't apply for the jobs that's why no. there aren't very many black people in those jobs because they just don't apply for them because they're lazy or they're this that or the other whatever excuse comes in without ever looking at what does the environment do for them in order to be accessible, to be inviting, to include them. There's a two-way thing. So for me, that is who I am as an educator. It is who I am as a therapist. It is who I am as a coach. It's always looking at the power dynamic between the individual and their environment and thinking about their responsibility in that and the environment's responsibility and where there's a lot of environmental responsibility then how can I support them in order to impact that environment if I can't with children as a teacher I could but I can't do that sometimes with my coaches or my clients it's not my work that's their work um but it's a relief for people to think of themselves in that context. They don't have to hold so much um, negativity towards themselves, which they've swallowed from the environment. Yeah. Well, and, and and just as you're talking, it, I'm thinking the the work you did in in that school was Gestalt work, and <laughs> maybe before you identified as a Gestalt <laughs> practitioner, so mm-hmm. something you and you was drawn in and playing in a larger context. I, I, I'm going to say get personal when we talk about the, the academic career. I'm, I'm somebody who I taught for over a decade at a very well-known university in New, in New York. And um, it's one of the least enjoyable things I've done in my life. I, I, I chose to not commit to that. I love my corporate work a lot more, a lot, you know, and I don't have to go into why. So, the point is, you chose to play there. You just retired there, uh, the University of Nottingham. Twenty-eight years, you did your graduate work there. Um, what sustained you in being a teacher at that level? And if there were frustrations, what are some frustrations you encountered? Oh, there were lots of frustrations. <laughs> oh, please, please share one juicy story about that because I can so identify with that. Oh. God. Um, and don't, don't edit and be polite. Just let us, t- just give us a story. I I guess it's the, um, 
for me, oh God, I need to be really careful, don't I? I'm talking about <laughs> no, you don't. Um, when I first started, it was a very male environment. It was senior professors. It was very hierarchical. It was mm. very male. I was just a bright young thing, you know, and t- treated like a bright young thing. Dear, 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 go away. Um, and I thought, I remember thinking, I'll last six months here. This is. Yeah. But the truth was that I just had my, I had, I got the job when my second son was three weeks old. Wow. So I, I went into the interview with milk dripping down my thing because <laughs> I, I literally had to rip him off the breast and pass him to my mother who was sat next to me to go into the interview. My brain hadn't switched in. And three men, I was the only female candidate of three, five of us that were being interviewed. I was the only woman. And uh, I remember sitting down in the room and thinking, God, this is a waste of time, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, and they asked me lots of questions and I did my best to answer, thinking, oh, that wasn't very good or that wasn't a great answer, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden it was over and they said, is there anything you'd like? to ask us and I said yes could I just go out and come back in and start again because I think my brain's just kicked in (laughs) I want to answer the questions and they all laughed and I went out and I just said to my mum come on we're going home and so we left and uh, about three hours later I got a phone call why are you at home you're supposed to be outside waiting for them to announce the results and I said look I've got a three-year-old three-week-old baby it's clear I haven't got the job why make me come in and, and she said if you ever want to work in this university you have to come back and you have to be there when they come out or else you'll never be able to apply for another job I think you should come back so I came back and I was suckling him <laughs> <laughs> and, and what happened I'd been told what happened was that when the door opened they would come out and they would ask the person they were going to offer the job for. So I didn't even look up. I was just, you know, totally absorbed in him thinking I've got to get home. And they said my name, but my mother wasn't there for me to pass the baby to. because. (laughs) (laughs) So I had to take him in and accept the job. Uh, And um, so that kind of did challenge one of my preconceptions. I thought, no way in this male environment will I have a place. Um, I guess for me, it's a very, um, the pressure to write was just incredible because I was a teacher. I'm a teacher in my bones. I love teaching. Mm -hmm. I absolutely love it. It's, um, I love engaging people in projects where they have to feel things, think things, negotiate things, engage with other people. Learning is an embodied process for me all about embodiment it's all about making contact with yourself yes. and with other people and with text often with text as well being able to engage with a piece of writing or something so it's a fantastically creative experience I think learning and the problem for me in the university was was I was expected to lecture you know to stand at the front and lecture how many other people uh, and then just see them in little seminars where we do a lot of talking about mm-hmm. what's embodied about that. So I said, no lectures. So I got through 28 years without ever giving a lecture until lockdown last year when we couldn't meet face to face. 
And all of us were told you have to load your lectures up online uh, and then you meet your student, give them a week to what, be able to watch them and then you, you meet them. Right. So uh, that was a bit of a shock to me. So I did gave my first ever lectures last year. <laughs> um, so the culture wasn't my kind of education. It was yeah. very cerebral rather than holistic. But I managed to get what I wanted. I managed to get classrooms that were circles of chairs. Um, I did it the way I wanted to do it. Nice. If I hadn't been able to do it the way I wanted to do it, I would have been out. And I was in a fantastic team. And we were all, we all fought together, you know. So I think teamwork saved me at the university. I'd never have been mm. able to stay if I hadn't been in a great yeah. team. Well, in everything you're saying, and we're going to talk about the current transition you're in, what really strikes me, you just ended with the work, I think community matters to you. Being in community, um, mm. the gestalt, Institute is a community. And you're you're 66 years old now. I, I didn't am. make I didn't make you any older than you are. So you're 66. No, 66. You are you are you are letting go of two very prominent professional roles mm-hmm. in communities that greatly matter to you. So that is a big transition. You and I spoke last fall, and, and I remember you used this wonderful analogy, and and maybe this is a good way to start talking about your fourth act. You said is, I'm about to give, give birth. It's a nine-month period, and I'm giving birth to something new. And I'm going to just throw a few questions out. Because uh, when we leave, there's pressure to keep doing the same thing because we're really good at it. So people will call us because they know us for stuff we're really good at. So the metaphor of giving birth to something new is powerful to me. Mm. So how is that going for you so far? Fill us in. <laughs> oh, well, it's a good job we're talking this week, this month, rather than last week. <laughs> well, I'm glad I got you in a good week. Okay. <laughs> um. I, uh, it was very scary, actually, giving up, um, giving up the role. I have to honestly say that I haven't missed it, um, Mm -hmm. possibly because the last few months were locked down anyway. So I was working from home. That really helped me to leave. The last, um, we went, went into lockdown in March. I left at the end of September. So for that period of time, all the work was being done from home. So it was a, a very different job and a job that I found less satisfying and less enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Uh, although we all made the best of it that we could and tried to support the students as much as we could. Yes. Um, since leaving, uh, yeah, well, the university's had me back. <laughs> <laughs> um, to do more teaching because... They forgot to take my modules off the catalogue um, and there wasn't anybody else to teach them. So I kind of, I had said to them, if you ever need me, call me. And they did. So I ended up teaching two modules, school, society, mental well-being, uh, schools, society and mental health and well-being uh, and uh, 
a module on grief and loss, which is very pertinent at the moment. For but if, if, if we can channel Vanessa Redgrave for a moment. <laughs> and here, here's where I'm going with this one. Did you say yes to coming back to teach because, well, that's what a good girl does? Or did you say yes because um, the content is actually kind of cool? Did you say yes because, gosh, I've given them 28 years. I can't say no now. Like, help us understand. Was it easy to say yes? Uh, How did you work that one out for yourself? It wasn't an easy decision at all. Yeah. the School Society of Mental Wellbeing module, I um, I have a very dear colleague who actually has started at the university at, on the same day as me mm-hmm. and ended on the same day as me. So we were both there for the same 28 years in the same team. And he and I, he, he and I had taught that module together. So it was a, are we going to do it? So neither of us wanted to do it on our own. So we we ended up having a conversation on a park mm-hmm. bench in the freezing cold in November to decide whether we'd do it. And we decided we'd do it for ourselves because mm-hmm. it would give us another chance to work together without the constraints of being yeah. in our full-time roles. Yeah. And I love him dearly and because it was a challenge to move the module online because it was such an experiential module. How the hell are we going to do it? And then we thought, well, that's a nice challenge to have, to have to create something different and new. It's not just same old, same old, doing it again. So that was that. And the grief and loss one um, was a bit of a good girl moment, I'm ashamed to say. (laughs) Uh, But... I did do it differently in that I really negotiated a good rate for myself as an outsider coming in. Because as you know, academic life is very poorly paid. Yes. And I wasn't well, prepared to go in for the bra- same. Bravo on that negotiation. A word from your sponsor. That's me. I invite you to go to the website associated with this podcast, www.myfourthact.com. You will find other equally inspiring conversation with great humans. And you will also learn more about the My Fourth Act mastermind groups where cool people figure out how to chart their own fourth acts. Please check it out. And now back to the conversation. I want to go a little deeper on this because it, it it sounds on the surface kind of easy and obvious, which is I'm going to, I'm letting go of responsibilities so I can explore some new things mm-hmm. for myself. You used a, a word early in the conversation, Lela, which is the word, what, what, the word magic and magical and what's magical and magic for you. Mm-hmm. Yet at the same time, you know, we, we carry, decades of embodied wisdom that's also there and wants to be honored. So yeah. how do you how do you honor that and create space of discovering something new that maybe you don't even know what it is? How how is that unfolding for you? Um so that has happened 
you know some of this mm-hmm. uh, because I joined your first mastermind group. You did. And I was uh, delighted to be invited to join that group, having just joined you for a taster session. Uh, and um, I couldn't have, I couldn't be where I am now without the support of that group, I think. So I'm a sociable person. I love contact. I love dialogue. I can also withdraw and let things settle in myself. Give us a little bit of a taster or a preview of what's being birthed that maybe wasn't in your consciousness even last yeah. summer, right before you were retiring from the university. Um, I guess through my role as um, chair of UK AGP, um, in a way, I've been bringing my educational experience and my leadership work to that role. And I mm-hmm. think I inherited a wonderful organization from an amazing woman so I haven't done all of this she had already been sowing a lot of seeds with the group I have a fantastic team of people and we've been building a very strong strong organization that's very community driven and my big effort has been to link us to Europe because of Brexit So we now have, so all our members can now work in Europe and we're connected through the European associations. That was a Bravo, that's beautiful. I feel that activism has been very important to me. And in order to, to do that work, I have had to really learn how to ground myself Mm. and to be present, to be calm and to get people to listen to me. I have been really trying to embody the Vanessa Redgrave that I <laughs> as a child, and I could never be her because she's got, you know, so many amazing qualities. But I don't do bad for me, you know. I'm me, so. Um, and I think the notion of presence has just become more and more and more and more important to me, and I've realised the power of it, the power of being fully able to what a very good colleague of mine and friend says is to show up you know and I think I was frightened to show up fully for a long time because of old stuff so I could show up on behalf of other people I could show up on behalf of the kids on behalf of my community their parents the community for the guest workers in Berlin I could show up for other people but I was struggling to show up for myself. And so I think what I'm giving birth to is a me that is ready to take her place in a totally different way. And I want to teach other people about um, and work with other people on what I call embodied presence, Mm -hmm. uh, which is the idea that was birthed in the mastermind group or through a weekend of teaching that I did as a trainer. Yes. Um, And uh, I feel really, really excited about that because I think it's fundamental for quality, quality of contact, quality of being and quality of work and quality of output. If if you're really there. And if I, if I just can expand that for our listeners. Um, I think one of the opportunities we all have as we get older 
is to more boldly embody fully who we are, um, perhaps with less of the pressures, real or not, to present ourselves differently because we think that's what we need in the job, or when we're younger, this is what I need to keep my partner happy, or you know, all, all those ways in which we disembody ourselves. And, and the beauty of what you're saying is that the more fully embodied we are with what we know, what spirit tells us, and the wisdom of the decades, you know, our impact in the world just changes. Yeah. 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 I, and why shouldn't we make an impact on the world? Yeah. I, you mentioned something earlier on that, that I, I want to go back to because it's, I think, so emblematic of what, and I include myself, you and I are essentially the same age. And um, you spoke about the school and you said, well, I took the job because it also allowed me to take care of somebody who was important to me, who I think was dying or in that process. Um, I know you've had some important losses in your personal life, people that matter to you. Yeah. And I know you're, um, you're being a daughter to an aging mother who requires some attention. Uh, I, I'm, I'm paying attention to my 96-year-old mother in Germany, and it's a powerful process. How are you making emotional space for all of that as you're transitioning into doing more embodied leadership work? being a voice for that, uh, paying attention to the needs of your mother who does not live with you. Mm. All of us figured out in our own ways. I know there's no recipe, but how are you figuring that one out for yourself? Um, I, uh, I've been resourcing myself quite significantly since I left work. Um, and my, I've done some shamanic training which has been incredibly helpful and um I'm it's Irish Celtic shamanic training it's their beautiful version. and it is really beautiful work so a lot of journeying a lot of connecting with spirit um I have a a special connection with horses which I've had since I was a very mm -hmm. little girl and yeah. uh, I was very lonely and a bit traumatized as a child. And my freedom was getting on my bike and cycling out into the countryside because we lived on the edge of town. So it wasn't dangerous. There was hardly any traffic or anything uh, to a field where there was a, a horse. And I told my horse, this it was my horse. It didn't I don't know whose horse it was, but for me, it was my horse. And I talked to that horse about everything. Um, and much later on, and through the shamanic training, and I realized that I have a, sh a horse spirit guide that is with yeah. me. And the shamanic training has really connected me to that energy and to that part of myself in a powerful way. Um, I, The mastermind has, a, has been a support for me very much. I meditate every day. Um, I walk every day. I'm in a choir. So we sing. Um, unfortunately, not at the moment. But because we are so connected as a group, we do meet in pairs and small. When we're allowed to meet, we meet and we have fun and we 
we do sing together, although we, you know, shouldn't. <laughs> um, yeah, and my, you know, I have two amazing children. I have a, you know, a great family. I, I just feel very nourished, very privileged with all the friendships and all the people that I have in my life. Mm-hmm. And I, um, yeah. I couldn't couldn't be be where I am without all the wonderful people who have come into my life and and seen me and said something to me that really opened a door. And I've had the courage to walk and the wisdom to walk through the door. Yeah. Take it up. Uh, And I, I trust that even as I age, those people like you will keep showing up and more doors will open. So I just have a, that this journey is, I don't know the end. I don't know what the end point is, but I don't know the route. Um, I just trust that the right people will be there. And, um, and, and that is a resource for me. I, I so appreciate you mentioning the shamanic training. I've, I've had my own initiations of that sort where suddenly Yet in my whole being, in my whole body, I know that mm. I am more than I thought I was. Yeah. And the connection to the world is bigger than I thought it was. And it's humbling and liberating at the same time to know that. If you, if you take a moment right now, and based on what you know right now, if you could whisper some advice into uh, young Belinda's ears when she's a young girl, a young Catholic school girl, <laughs> um, what would you like to say to her? Um, yeah, what would I like to say to her? Trust yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Trust yourself. Keep learning. Keep growing. Keep connecting. You know. Keep, keep, yeah, that's it, I think. Yeah. If you were to give any any guidance, and I know it, it's some people gosh, like say, I, I, that's not what I do as a psychotherapist. I don't give anybody guidance, but but just, and you know, and it, you, since you're not a mastermind, you know, we just take the leap and we say that. And um, if you were to offer any guidance to, folks who listen to us who are uh, in their 60s, just retired, not ready to stop, want to explore some more, but maybe not sure of how to explore or where to go. But uh, what would you say to them from your own experience and also your experience as a psychotherapist? Um, I would say make time to slow down. Mm-hmm. Enjoy slowing down. Really listen to your body. Listen to your sensations. Stay joined up in yourself and you will find your way. Beautiful. Everybody's way, everybody's way is their own way. So, and I don't know what's right for anybody else, but I know that that slowing down and that staying with me has helped me to get clear about the next step and then the next step and then the next step. That's a beautiful note to end on. Before, before I say goodbye, 
if any of our listeners want to learn more about you and, and what you do, what's the best place to find you in the virtual world and get more information about you? Okay. Well, by the time this podcast comes out, <laughs> yes, I and a member of my wonderful mastermind group will have finally got my website up and running. Would that be BelindaHarris.com? .co.uk. Co.uk. All right. Yeah. I'll I'll feature that on on the My Fourth Act podcast website so folks can find you there. Be up by the time you put this out. Yes. <laughs> Wonderful. And congratulations on on that commitment. It's recorded now. <laughs> Belinda, thank you for being you and thank you for the gift of this conversation. I just enjoyed our chat so much. Thank you, Achim. I have so enjoyed it. Like what you heard? Please go to myfourthact.com and subscribe to receive my updates on upcoming episodes. Please also subscribe to us on the platform of your choice. Rate us, give us a review, and let us all create some magical fourth acts together. Ciao.